Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Dale Roberts. Dale is a still-recovering former advertising writer and creative director who packed up his pen and laptop in early 2013 and made the move to Tangerine to help Canadians discover lower-fee index investing. While at Tangerine, he discovered his love of helping Canadians save money on investment fees, so he left his full-time job to start his own blog to show Canadians how easy it can be to take control of your investments and live better financial lives. In my interview with Dale, we discuss strategies for paying off your mortgage sooner, getting into the real estate market as a first-time home buyer, and buying an investment property. Without further ado, here's my interview with Dale Roberts. Hi, Dale. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. So you were an ad guy, then an advisor at Tangerine, and now you operate your blog. Can you give us a quick outline of your interesting journey? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Again, it is kind kind of a weird path. As an ad guy, again, I was advertising, copywriter, and creative director. My initial dream job, you know, where I would uh, write TV commercials, radio commercials, billboards, do online stuff as well. And it was a really, really cool way to make a living for sure. And had had a reasonably, you know, pretty successful career winning, you know, Canadian international awards. So it was all good and, and, and fun. Great, you know, really blessed. It was a great way, fun way to meet a lot of creative people. It was awesome. Make good money too. It's a, you know, it's a high paying industry. So that part was good, hard to break into. But it was awesome. But, you know, through the whole thing, I was always, always obsessed with money. So essentially always talking to people about money and even indexing. I got into that, you know, really, really, really early. But people just don't care as we know, right? Too much about money. So always said that if anybody would ever pay me to talk about money all day, I would certainly jump at it. So I had a a 27-year ad career and at age 50, started a new career and I moved to uh, Tangerine as an investment advisor there. They have, as you know, the first robo-advisor and they have their low fee index-based portfolio. So I worked on that for five and a half years. Also, you know, it was pretty energetic and moved on to the trainer as well. So I would train the new hires and do a lot of existing uh, training along the way. And then from there, just, just, you know, felt like needed another move on and help Canadian investors another way. So I, I started my own blog, which is uh, Cut the Crap Investing. So I left in uh, June of 2018 and uh, started that. And, and now I'm just about uh, seven months into that. So it's tons of fun and learn, learn a bunch every day. So it's just same, same mission, if you will, just a, a different way to uh, talk to Canadians about their sort of financial situation. Great. And what do you find the most rewarding about perhaps your career at Tangerine as well as the blogging? No, no, great question. Really, it's just helping people raise, right? as, as you may know, you know, Canadians 
completely get ripped off, right? They, they pay the highest fees in the developed world, and it eats, just eats into your wealth. It's it's worse than all the studies. You know, I worked as a, even a, a portfolio analyst as, the, as well there where the Canadians would show me how they're invested, so I found out their stories. It's, it's terrible out there, right? They're giving away a good, good chunk. So really, just, just being able to get people out of that and, and get them to turn the corner and, um, you know, take charge of their, their, their own personal financial situation, whether it was a tangerine or, or elsewhere. Again, we really didn't care, right? We just wanted to get see them get out of the crap. And um, same thing now, you know, I help people in a different way. But when I get those stories that coming back and people said, yeah, you know, I'm going to make the move and just help them maybe cut their fees by, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, even 90% or more. And just see that, you know, when you do that, it's it's life changing, right? So. I always said that even at Tangerine, it was all it was all on the phone. But you could you could have a you know even a thirty forty minute hour conversation with someone, and you know that you've changed their life, that you've you've set them on that path. And then that part you know is that part's really really rewarding. And I still do that today. Wow, that's great to hear. Yeah, it certainly sounds like something that would motivate you to get out of bed every single day. On the topic of real estate, can you tell us about your real estate and mortgage journey and history over the years? Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, and it's it's been a big part, right? Like I won't always talk about it as much. You know, again, my my site largely based on investing and personal finance principles, but you know, real estate's been a huge part of it. And and the backdrop to that really is, you know, I guess story is an interesting one that I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent as well. I I left sort of full time employment in the in the ad industry, and you know, hooked up with a few folks and started a business. And actually, one one guy stole all the money, and I got wiped out at thirty. Oh my goodness! So. Yeah, like completely to zero. I actually had to liquidate my RSPs to the point where I couldn't even, couldn't even pay my rent. Yikes. So I essentially started over at 30, and that's when I was had met, had met my wife. And just all sort of new beginnings. And from there, and you know, we, we saved up a little bit, <clears throat> bought our first house maybe about three years later. And from there, that really was a, a, a big part of building that net worth where we we paid off. It didn't pay off completely. Not like you. You probably would have. Uh, we nearly paid off our house in, in about the first four years or so, four or five years, right? So we went really, really aggressive at, at the first mortgage. And I would say that was sort of my learning or what I would offer to others too, is that when you get on top of it right from the beginning, right, just, just as you did, and you get that first one either out of the way or really close, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of your life, right? So in about five years, we're almost had that one paid off. And then we moved to our, our second house. And from there, though, interest rates were so low. We got really, really lucky. Like we, we bought it, you know, towards the bottom of the Toronto market with, with our first house. As you know, there was a huge correction. I think it was in the 80s or something, right, that it started and kept going down. So we bought our, our first house, not at, completely at the bottom, but near it, but it just put us in such a great position. And I think, you know, you know, I don't even mind sharing the numbers. I think like our first house, we bought it like around 199 and sold it at about 250 So not not huge, right? Not some of the big gains that you see in Toronto lately. But there, you know, that was all almost entirely pure equity. We went to the second house and bought it, I think at about 349 We bought it in the, in the Rouge area in Toronto, nice, nice area on the uh, uh, beaches area by uh, very eastern uh, point of the city towards Pickering on the Rouge Valley, the uh, actual national park. I think we bought that around like 349 And that's when housing prices just went absolutely crazy. 
it's probably the average sort of for four bedroom here now goes this around 1.2 million or so. So that's incredible, right? That's just something you never think is going to happen. And and I like to, when I write, I like to call it our accidental uh, investment. It reminds and, me of my father's property. He bought it in the beach area of Toronto for three ninety nine back in 2001. And it's worth well over a million dollars. So like, oh, yeah. that's definitely lucky in terms of timing, similar to you. It is, yeah. And it's just, and again, people have to realize too, right, that, you know, what sets you up for that? You know, there's always, people use that acronym of FIRE, like, you know, financial independence, retire early, and that kind of stuff. But it's really about your net worth, right? It's not always just about your liquid assets, but what, what sets you up in the end is all of your assets, any real estate you have, anything of value, really, plus your investments and everything. And what is that value at the end? Like, what are you worth, right? That's a net worth is all assets minus your debt. And, you know, because whether it's not, completely liquid on on the spot but that's what sets you up because you can certainly you, know, you can sell properties you can turn them into income that's what really really sets you up for the the, the full financial journey and end for your freedom and for us too the interesting part of that is you know we went really hard at that first mortgage and i, I just don't like that like i know you're in that same vein too just don't like it you know we you know we've paid off our, our cars and stuff like that too we just don't carry debt and uh, but we didn't we didn't go aggressively at the, the second mortgage because there really was no reason for because Interest rates were so low. I think we were using a floating rate. It's probably ridiculous, like around like 2.3 or 2.4 percent. At that point, you can earn more from investments, right? And that's that's a, a, a bit of learning there too. Is if you can make more from your investments, and typically if you have a good solid investment plan, you can you know potentially earn like six, seven, eight, nine even 10% per year, which is well beyond your interest rate, right? So at that point, it really does make more sense to direct the extra monies that you have, you know, at your investments, not necessarily your mortgage. Now, you know, we did the um, biweekly payments and such, but we, we hardly ever accelerated it because there was just no need to pay it off because the interest rate was so low and it wasn't a big mortgage either, right? Did you make lump sum payments on your mortgage? Like what was your strategy exactly in terms of paying it off? Yeah, you know what? We In all honesty, we just kind of, I think we maybe made a, a couple really small ones, but it was basically just let it sit there and just chunk away at it. Um, from there, because we had not a lot in, in the investment camp, if you will, right? We had, um, again, with me you know, being wiped out at 30, we essentially just saved what we could to get to our house, uh, our first one, and not have to pay the insurance. Yeah, we didn't want that. So we just made sure we got the amount and put it down. And uh, But on the second one, no, we didn't We didn't do a lot. We, I think I can remember maybe making one small payment or two, sort of a little bit of pay down. There wasn't much there, so we just let it sit there. And I, I can remember, too, if for years and years having the principal sitting in a tax-free account where we, we could have gone and been mortgage-free and it would have, would have been a simple thing to do, but we, we just didn't do it because it wasn't the actual amount that we were paying in interest wasn't very much. And we were, we're continually moving monies to, to the investments. And we got lucky on that front. They did, they did really, really well as well. So it really was, yeah, it was a combo of mortgage and you know rebuilding that investment wealth and then quickly got the net worth. Well, it probably didn't take long even to get to a million dollars, tell you the truth, for net worth. Well, that's quite a remarkable story, and I'm glad to hear that you were able to recover from what happened in, in your 30s there. So my next question for you is, do you think that most people should own a home? Um, you know what? I, I think, yeah, if it's, if it's at all possible, I, I think they should. And the reason, I know the math, like, and you would know too, you see, see all the articles and writings on, hey, you can rent, and you, you probably, some will even say you'll end up further ahead, right? But the thing with that is you would have to apply the same discipline that you would to your mortgage that you would to investing. And most people won't do it, right? 
they'll think the money's liquid and available and then, you know, in any kind of emergency or sometimes even any kind of want, they'll go grab that money. But you can't do that with your house, right? Or your whatever property, condo, whatever it might be. It's for it, savings. It's for saving. It's forced discipline, right? And you don't and you don't worry about your house. We used to always say on the investment side too, when we're trying to get clients to exhibit uh, good investor behaviors, like it's like, do you check the value of your house every day? <laughs> Why are you calling in saying your investment's down by three thousand dollars? It's like, you know what, do you, your house could be down, but do you check? No, they don't, right? They don't really care. They might see some stuff in the news about real estate values, but it's just that discipline, right? And so for that, I think, yeah, if you if you can at all, again, don't take on too much. Don't ever, ever get yourself into a position where you can't afford it. And you're going to get yourself in trouble, right? Like you don't want to be in that position that we read about that if someone says they lose their job and, you know, you know, three months later, they're going to lose their house or they can't, you know, afford any kind of hardships going to derail them. But if you if you can comfortably do it at all, I'd say absolutely, absolutely uh, get that property to, again, to build your, your net worth. Yeah, because I've read articles that say, oh, you'd be better off in some cases renting and investing. But the thing is, most people, as you mentioned, don't have that discipline. So I think if you know, yeah, you, no, no. you ask yourself some questions like whether you're going to stay put in the same city for the next several years and whether you have the financial discipline to put money aside for like emergency fund and to cover things like utility costs. If, if you're, you have a stable job and all that, then I certainly think owning a house makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that discipline to invest their money. So you know, if you have that, yeah, and you're right. There, there are good reasons why some won't, because again, they might you know, be a little bit more transient. They're they're going from job to job here and there, so they won't, right? But yeah, you like if you if you're in a city that you love and a job that you love, and you think you're hanging around, absolutely do it. And I'd, and I'd say get in as soon as you can too, right? It's might, like stock market values. We you can't time the market, right? Just, as I like to say, might as well pay your own mortgage than the landlord's mortgage. Yeah, I mean, it it just gives you such a great feeling too to build that equity. Right now, even when it's not paid off, but even just those years when you know that it's in there. But but like you said, and, and I was saying there, it's just it's just that forced saving. It's that good behavior that most people won't do. Most people are terrible investors, right? Like the, the history of investing and performance is terrible. People don't even get near the market returns because they they bail when things get rough, right? But a house you you stick with it. So there's so many good reasons why it's just a it's just a great wealth builder. At least with houses, if you hear that house prices dropped like five, ten percent, I don't think people are going to go and go. Oh no, I'm going to sell my house tomorrow because house prices have gone down. But you know, maybe with yeah. investments they might do that. So at least it's a bit different with houses. Yeah, people just don't do that, right? Whereas, and that's that's great. That's a great point. It's the sort of the irony of it. it's like you know, people will sell their investments because they're t- down ten percent, but they would never sell their house, right? So it's, that's that's a great sort of analogy there. As you were mentioning earlier, house prices in certain markets like Toronto have gone up quite a lot in the last several years. I mean, being a homeowner during that time and getting in when prices were low is definitely a nice feeling to have that high net worth on paper. But for millennials and younger folks trying to get into the market, it's probably not so nice. So do you have any Mm -hmm. advice, Dale, for millennials trying to get into the real estate market right now? I just say get in when you can get in, right? As soon as you can make it happen. And once you say, again, you have to do all that stuff, like have your emergency fund. You got to make sure you've paid down any debt or high interest debt. You got to have your, your house in order first. But as soon as you can do it, I would say get in. Like even if it's not 
the place you thought that, you know, you wanted, you know, this amount of house or this amount of condo. Because you just don't know, like, you know, Toronto's, Toronto's a market and Vancouver's a market. Montreal, some of these cities have, have exponential growth rates, if you will, in, in, or in, the, in the prices of the properties. And it, it actually outstrips investing uh, returns so you can't catch up. Where it's not like you're saying, oh, I'm going to just keep investing and eventually I'll, you know, I'll get there. It's like, no, the, the price of the homes are actually outstripping the growth rate that you can get from investment. So as soon as you can get in, and even if you have to drop your expectations, is to get in and at least you're in somewhere where that's going to start building equity. And again, then you can do that jump, right? Like our, our first home for the time, at, you know, $199 for a house was quite modest, but that, that's what we did to get in. Again, everything has to be within reasonable bounds so you can afford it. But unless you know your savings rate and your is really, really high, and you can compound it a bit with investments, but you're you're probably not not going to catch up, right? Again, I would just think get in, get in when you can get in. Yeah, and I, I'm just curious I'm, on that point. You can be honest for a second. The first property that you bought was that your dream home, or was that kind of your like stepping stone to your eventual, I, I guess, dream home? People want to perhaps buy their dream home right off the bat, but it's just not realistic. Yeah, no, it you know, it was, for us, it was, it was a dream come true because for, for me, I just never, I mean, for a while, you want to have that kind of stuff happen, we're kind of getting wiped out and it was tough to break into advertising and just, I never even thought I'd be a homeowner for, for many, many years, right? So even just to have a house, and then we had, you know, our daughter, our first child, it was, that was a dream life, right? We had a really nice little house and one nice little one and a half story. It was perfect. It was great. It was just when our, our son came along, it wasn't, wasn't a very big house and probably wasn't the neighborhood that we wanted to live in, but it was great while it was there. We were there for five years. So at the time, I'd say, yeah, you know, it was it was our, our dream home, but uh, there was something bigger and bigger and better waiting down the road. We drive down that house or buy that house every now and then, and we love it. We wish we'd, we'd kept it, actually, for our, like a rental property. It was a, it was a really gorgeous, cute little house and did, did some work on it as well. So. But no, we, we like we, we like both of them. They're both both a, kind of a dream come true, if you will. Great. We touched on this earlier, but I just wanted to get your take on using spare cash flow for mortgage payment acceleration versus investing. I mean, for somebody like myself who's risk averse, I decided to pay down my mortgage even though rates were low. I kind of saw it as rates are low today, but they might be higher in the future. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, could you just give me a bit more of your take on that and some considerations people might make when deciding whether to pay down their mortgage sooner versus investing? Yeah, I think, you know, somewhere, I mean, obviously you want to have a certain amount of monies in that are liquid, right? I mean, that's that emergency fund and, and such. From there, I think, I think you nailed a, a big part of it, though, really comes down to what you're comfortable with, right? Like, they're both big wealth builders for sure. But the one one thing I would say though, like when you, you know, if you have any decent income or generous income, if you think about putting money into an RSP, you know, you get that almost instant return, right? That, as you know, you can get that tax return at your, typically towards your marginal tax rate, whether it be 20, 30, 40%. That doesn't always get factored into the equation, right? So when you figure that amount, that's a pretty massive guaranteed return and sometimes tax-free, right? So I, I think you can maybe do a, a mix where, you know, if you put money into a RSP and get the tax return again, that could go towards a mortgage down payment or it could go to, into a tax rate account from there, right? So I, I, my take is I think a, a mix of, of both is nice. The, the math would say like, you know, what's your interest rate versus what's your expected rate of return for investments. And typically like, a, let's say if someone's 
kind of down the middle for investments, you're typically looking in the area of about six, seven percent. And then, you know, factor that against your whatever your interest rate is, right? And today they're still pretty low. So on, on paper, most would say maybe invest those monies. But again, it comes down to your comfort level. Like there's lots of folks that I talk to that do very little of sort of liquid stock and bond mutual fund investing. They're just more comfortable by holding the hard assets. And, and that works too, right? Like, you know I, know, I know folks even that I worked with in the investment industry that they do everything they can to convert RSPs and everything into uh, an area where they can invest in, in real estate. So they're both great, but probably more comes down to your comfort level. And as you mentioned, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. If you decide to contribute to your RSP, you could use the refund to pay down your mortgage sooner. So Mm -hmm. you you don't Mm -hmm. have to necessarily choose one or the other. You could have the best of both worlds if you did it that way. Yeah. But always, again, always put this on my site. And it was a main, main point when I was advisors is you have to understand the risk of investing, right? And you have to understand your risk tolerance levels. So, and that means like, you know, can you stand to watch your money go down by 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%? Um, you have to know that, but you can build your portfolio so that it will typically potentially only go down by that range. Like you can dial in the risk level. So again, it's really important to know your risk level and then create your portfolio that matches your risk tolerance level as well. So this thing that people always think, oh, I need to take on a high risk portfolio, but you don't. You can have a nice, you know, balanced portfolio or even balanced income, which has, you know, lots of bonds in it and create a portfolio that only, you know, even a major correction might only go down by 10 or 15% or so. Great advice. Earlier, we had talked about this a bit, but do you have any plans to purchase an investment property? I know you said that you wish you had held on to the first mm-hmm. property as yeah. one, but any plans in the future to purchase an investment or rental property? You know what? We're actually, I wouldn't say being forced upon us, but we're thinking about my, my daughter goes to school down east and just finishing up her, her undergrad from PI and then moving to Halifax where she'll apply for her uh, graduate studies. For her, she has to pay rent anyway. That The math makes sense where she's going to be spending seven, eight, 900 bucks a month anyway to go get a property if she finds two roommates that it can actually be cash flow positive. So we are actually looking at that right now. It's part that, yeah, the investment, I really don't want the hassle to tell you the truth, but a part of it is really, we just want to make sure that our daughter's set up in, in a good place, right? Um, and see if we get used to it. But I think when you look at it, it seems like a property is for university towns seems to be kind of the easiest way to make make money from rental because there's just a stream of, of more students coming in each year and you can carve up the house how you like and talk to lots of folks that make the um, student rental property quite profitable. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we do that within the uh, next year or so. And after your daughter finishes school uh, and she's no longer living at the property, what would you do with the property? Would you still hold on to it after that? Yeah, I guess I guess we'll just see how how things went, right? If we go that route, that if it's not too much hassle and not too much work, because uh, that, that's a big part of it too, right? I don't, you know, I don't want that that stress of uh, I find even looking after one home is <laughs> quite a bit, right? So if we have two, and, and actually we have other properties that are probably will, will come our way as well, right? From from inheritance and such. So you know, all of a sudden you could, you could find yourself with you know two, three four properties and that in itself looks like it could be a full-time job right and then how much free time do you have from there so you know like everybody everything's could change like year by year it's and everything is it's so fluid right so 
I think we would, would probably look at it at the time and see what the value of the property is too, right? It's close up quite a bit. Once again, it's a lot easier to stick that in investment and you can invest in, in real estate as well, right? With uh, Which are REITs, uh, you know, real estate investment trusts where it's more commercial properties or all commercial properties. And those returns are very good and actually typically greater than housing uh, value increases. So you can just, you know, enter a couple of tickers and all of a sudden you're owning lots of like uh, retirement homes and apartment buildings and, you know, a mall space, all that kind of stuff. So you can, you can invest on the commercial side as well without any of that sort of hassle. That's a great point. Now, you mentioned earlier that you almost reached mortgage freedom, but could you tell us what's the best part of being mortgage free? Yeah. And we are. Yeah. As of last year, we were. Oh, congratulations. Um, I guess. Thanks. And um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't soon after reading your book, actually, because I, I remember winning a copy of that at uh, Tangerine. And it's a, a great read, of course. Did you have a mortgage and, burning party? No, that's the thing, right? That's what I was going to say, right? You know, like even it was with Scotia and they sent us like a little package and some confetti and stuff. Oh, that's so cool. And you, even after reading your book, I was like, yeah, we did. You know what? To tell you the truth, Sean, it was kind of like surprisingly kind of ho-hum. It just like, you know, and honestly, this is terrible. We didn't even go for dinner. We didn't do anything. We just kind of like, oh, that's cool. It was <laughs> just kind of, it just, it just felt like it's something you're supposed to do, right? It's nice and not having those tell, payments coming out of your bank account, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and that part's really good, right? But even to tell you the truth, it was really underwhelming. I guess because you know it's coming and, and you you see it happening, you know it's going to happen. It, it, to tell you the truth, it probably from the time we did, it probably feels a little bit better now. I think after you have those months or a year or more or whatever of not having that mortgage payment come out, that it's sort of like that cumulative feel of not having needing that cash flow, that feels better than the actual day, to tell you the truth, which is kind of weird. That's funny. It took me three years and two months to pay it off. And it's been three years and two months since Mm -hmm. I've paid it off. I paid it off in September 2015. And yeah, I mean, um, I wanted to pay it off super quickly. So it's quite a big occasion. But yeah, I, I certainly don't miss those mortgage payments coming out of my bank account. And me personally, I mean, the best part about not having those mortgage payments is just being able to focus on other goals, whether it's saving for retirement Absolutely. or, or yep. traveling. And I guess my final question for you is with that cash flow that you were putting towards your mortgage payments, have you redirected it towards another financial goal like your RSP, TFSA, or, or traveling? Or how have you made use of that extra cash flow? No, good, good point. Actually, that kind of led to, I guess my financial freedom, if you will, right? <laughs> in some way. So I probably, I probably wouldn't have, you know, again, I left Tangerine in June and, and started my new venture. I probably wouldn't have done that if we had the mortgage, right? Or even if we had car payments and stuff like that. It, it just freed up that ability not not to retire because my, my portfolio wasn't retire ready, but it but allowed me that space to go take on a new venture, right? And and that's that's pretty large too, right? If you figure that the house, the mortgage part, the net worth, that's a big part of that for me, what was my my sort of form of financial freedom or fire light, if you will, right? So yeah, it just freed up the ability to go do something else. And seven months later, like things are really, really starting to pick up. I get to do what I want. When I left Tangerine, my first home office actually set up on a beach house in Prince Edward Island, where my, my daughter goes to school. And that was just so cool, right? I just, I know I, I left and two weeks later, I you know, I actually launched my site from Brackley Beach in Prince Edward Island, and I've been back again. 
took my mom there uh, about a month ago. So, yeah, it just enabled all that financial uh, sort of that freedom, if you will. And I still have to make half a living, but um, you know, things are already uh, picking up and lots of different ways to write for other people. My site will uh, is starting to make a little bit of money, but that's not the goal of it. It's to more help Canadians. But but I, but again, I wouldn't have been able to do that without not being mortgage free. That's great. That's great to hear that you're enjoying your financial freedom and certainly everyone's financial freedom is different. But you know, if you have that vision, it can kind mm-hmm. of motivate mm-hmm. you to work hard, hard towards it. And it sounds like, you know, you're enjoying the financial freedom that you've attained. So congratulations. No, yeah, no, I, I love it. I think which I mean, you have to do something that you love, right? For, for a job. And, a, you know, I've been fortunate that I mean, you know, was always had that a creative bent, so to be able to be a writer and on, on the advertising side, and follow another passion from investing, and then kind of bring them together as a you know writer and still investor on the blogging side. It, yes, it's fun to be able to to do what you want. Dale, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, no, really, just the same thing. Like I, you know, do a lot of writing on um, again cut cut the crap investing dot com. Most people want to manage portfolios, so I'll write on the robo-advisors, which is a great option, ETF model portfolio, so people who want to self-direct you know, by way of exchange-traded funds, one of the cheaper ways to invest, and happy to help people for free. I just I just work for Karma. Right? I'm just happy to make it a big kick of uh, uh, helping people you know, fire their, fire their uh, high-fee funds and sometimes uh, poor advice that they get. And some people like and just buying individual stocks, like that's what I do as well too, right? Like I'm sort of into all the, all the styles of investing and have experience and all. But um, no, it's just, it's, it's good every day to just get up, right? Do what I want. I work hard, but um, again, it's not work. Well, great. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647 647- Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.